welcome to you this morning. Welcome to New Life Sunday service. Uh, New Life is a community that exists for the glory of God and the gospel of grace. This is the good news of the love, compassion, and favor that God gives to us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. So if that's the first time that you're hearing that phrase, the gospel of grace, that's what that is all about. It's this message that we seek to return to uh, every moment of our lives, and it's this message indeed that we preach every week here on Sunday mornings. My name is Young, lead pastor here at New Life. Um, I'm really missing you. Uh, I was really glad to see all of your uh, messages of good morning and this morning. Um, I miss you on Friday as well, especially seeing the photo of Friday night prayer uh, as I was a little bit unwell at that time, but I'm feeling all better now. Um, but we are missing one another. Now, if you're new to New Life, welcome to the live stream. Uh, we would love to connect with you, so please stick around and fill out the newcomers form, which will be available at the end of the service via the QR code uh, that will be displayed on screen. Now, we're gonna have a little bit of a time of fellowship. Um, I know that we've already said good morning to one another, so maybe that's uh, just gotten us warmed up. So for our time of fellowship, during this uh, lockdown time, we've been typing in the live chat of the YouTube uh, live chat feature. Um, and we've been typing one thing. I really enjoy going back uh, during the week and reading through everyone's responses. Uh, it's not available right away, and so I have to wait until it gets um, fully uploaded by YouTube. And um, at that time, I read them back. Uh, this week, how about we share in the live chat just one aspect of God's character that you've been grateful for during this lockdown. So one aspect of God's character that you've truly been grateful for during this lockdown. I'll give you a few moments to write that out in the live chat. This one I know uh, might have been a little bit harder for you to share. You know, um, it's not something that might come immediately to mind, like you know, uh, finding out that you're not as extroverted as you thought you were, or you know, not needing coffee or anything like that. Um, or maybe because you just have too many uh, that you want to list. Uh, whatever the case, hopefully uh, you were able to type something out. Um, this week, I've truly been uh, thankful for um, God's compassion, just one aspect of his character that I've really been thankful for, um, as you can tell already by some of the prayers that we've been praying, some of the uh, readings that we'll be getting into. 
And um, we're gonna go into a time of the scripture reading now. We actually have a video uh, from one of our members, John Kim. And so I'll uh, turn it over to John. Hi, my name is John and I'll be reading a scripture for today's service. Please turn to Luke chapter 9 verses 51 to 56. That was Luke chapter 9 verses 51 to 56. This is the word of God. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. The next passage is Hosea chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. That was Hosea chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. This is the word of God. My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboam? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. Amen. Now we will continue to transition to the sermon. Thank you. Thank you very much for that scripture reading, John. Um, as we do each week, we'll be turning our eyes upon Jesus, the one that we worship, the one that we love. Uh, I know that was really confusing for some of the people watching the stream in the service because there's a slight delay. Um, but if we can turn our attention to the one that we love, Jesus, the perfect and compassionate one. Um, I'll pray for us before we get into the word this morning. Father, we turn to you and we look towards your son, the one who was perfect and compassionate, the one who still remains perfect and compassionate. He looks with a compassionate eye upon us. When we sense this in our hearts, Lord, our hearts are forever changed. Our hearts are moved. Indeed, our hearts are moved even towards compassion to ourselves and to those around us, to those that we might find it difficult to be compassionate towards. We pray, Lord, that you would guide our hearts this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to hear your word in a new and fresh way, in a way that we can truly understand, in a way that we can internalized to the point of being changed. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would speak through me and that you would speak through the word that you've prepared, that you would preach to our hearts, Lord, uh, to a way that it will actually engage with us and it will change the way that we are. 
It'll change our character. It'll help us, Lord, by molding us more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. Would you guide us this morning, help us to worship you on high. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know if you've ever spent an entire day off of the internet, um, or at the very least, off of social media. I think it's nearly impossible these days, um, particularly because we're in lockdown. You know, what do you do when you're in lockdown, right? You know, ever since the days when the internet became prevalent all across the world, I think there have only been a few times that I've had these days. You know, I'm kind of looking around the room right now, and I think I might be the only one that can remember those times before the internet was really uh, not available. I think, yeah, maybe. Um, if you were able to do this, if you were able to spend an entire day off the internet or off social media, what did you feel? What were some of the emotions, what were some of the thoughts going through your mind? Were you perhaps bored? Maybe you found yourself to be happy? Lately, uh, being at home all the time, I know that I'm spending way too much time online. You know, that's the nature of our world now. We're always connected. Feels like everything is connected, like some people's refrigerators are connected. Uh, but since I'm working from home, my only connection with people outside of my household is through the internet. The way that I access the news is through the internet. It feels like I'm always online. Everything that I do, it feels like I'm online. And being online all the time, I inevitably find well, I find myself on social media. I find the comments that people leave, the opinions of people all around the world. And man, just the level of toxicity, anger, lack of compassion and understanding. Like, I can find that in those times, my own mental health starts deteriorating. The more that I take it in, like literally, I can find it fraying at the edges of my mental health. I never thought I could feel this before, but it's like layers of me are being peeled off as I'm reading more and more. And it's like the sickness, like I can't stop scrolling through it and I'm just reading more and more and feeling anger and sadness welling up inside me because I'm reading this and I'm thinking, man, this is a real person most of the time writing these things. You know, these are the actual things that they think. Like, why do they think these things? We're not always good at this either. You know, we Christians, I mean, like I'm speaking specifically to Christians right now, right? We as Christians ought to be the most understanding, the most compassionate, the most receptive and welcoming. Do you largely impart to the way that Christ has made a way for us as the embodiment, the pinnacle of understanding, compassion, welcoming, and this ought to lead us to sharing the gospel openly with others. It should lead us towards being compassionate towards others, but you may know from your own interactions with people that don't know Christ. We Christians are not always seen very favorably. 
Often the terms that are used to describe us might be things like self-righteous, impatient, judgmental. You know, there are a lot of ways to describe Christians. Not all of them might feel fair, but then there are some that ring with just a little bit too much truth. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? This comes from our passage this morning. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? I used to think that this question was kind of funny the first couple of times that I read this. Like a funny misunderstanding. Like, oh man, what a funny thing John and James said that day. What are they thinking? Haha, <laughs> you know, but this week, it became a lot more disturbing. Like, I was reading this again and again, and I was just like, man, what? Like, a lot more apparent that these disciples, they were ones that were following Christ, and yet they couldn't quite get this firm grasp on his teaching, on his command, on his character. They mis- misunderstood his character to the point that they became vindictive and bloodthirsty. There's some racial undertones as well that's not immediately apparent unless you understand the context as there was a lot of mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And you'll see that all throughout the Gospels. I tried to think of like a modern day equivalent and it was hard. Like I thought about, you know, like the black-white tensions in America. I thought about um, maybe even immigration and like the upper middle class immigrants versus the lower socioeconomic immigrants. I thought about Koreans and, and basically everyone. Like, but at the end of the day, I realized that most of those were one-sided. Like, there's not a deep-seated mutual hatred between both sides. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, and the disciples, James and John, they truly believed that they were being helpful to Jesus by suggesting this. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven upon them? Like, they really thought they were being helpful to Jesus by suggesting this. Why didn't they understand? Like, what is it that they were actually misinterpreting? Well, Jesus and the disciples, their journey into the town starts like this. Luke 9, 51, when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. And you should see those words that are highlighted on screen for you. The days were coming to a close for him to be taken up. So the time for his ascension after his death and his resurrection are drawing near. So what does he do? He determined. So the literal translation, you know the Bible wasn't originally written in English, right? Literally translated, it would be, he stiffened or set his face to go. Like, you ever look at someone's face and you see their face is just set and you know you're not getting through to them. Like, they've set. The determination that Jesus is showing here is described elsewhere in the Old Testament in Isaiah 50 verse 7 where it states about the obedient servant. 
the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. So Jesus, knowing the pain and the utter rejection that he would face, he still, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, setting his face, determining to journey to to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the city of destiny for Jesus, where he's going to be arrested, hung upon the cross to die, where he'll be resurrected and ascend, he'll go because he desires to fulfill God's will. The final days loomed ahead for Jesus and he was determined, he had set his face to not shy away from them. The final days, these are commonly known in Christian circles as the passion. Perhaps you've heard that phrase before. I believe we use it during the Easter series. The passion, it comes from the Latin word for suffering. And it doesn't really have to do with, you know, I'm passionate about this, okay? It, it has to do with suffering. And so it's describing Jesus Christ's final days here on earth. And Jesus' compassion points us to his passion. So for the rest of the sermon, I'm gonna be using that, that phrase, his passion, the passion. Now, we often misunderstand God. Whereas in his perfection, in God's perfection, he can perfectly balance his compassion and his holiness, his forgiveness and his discipline. We humans, we tip the scales a little bit too much. And quite often we land in wrath and judgment. But our own compassion as Christians should do the same thing that Jesus' compassion does. Our compassion towards others should point them to his passion, that they might hear the gospel of grace and be saved. Now, I want to be clear here. In no way am I stating that God is not concerned with sin. Clearly he is. We can even see this in the gospel itself, that Jesus had to die for our sins. God's son had to die for our sins. He's clearly very concerned with sin. And we see that our sins after coming to know Christ brings discipline from God the Father. Like you know when you're being disciplined. We're disciplined by him out of love that we might change and grow and become more and more like what the image of a family member of God should look like. It's family business. He's concerned with us as members of his household, as his sons and daughters, so he disciplines us. And strangely, we often reject this discipline for ourselves, though it should be expected within the family, and we put these expectations on others that are outside of the family, not responding with compassion towards them, but instead with judgment, seeking metaphorically to call down fire from heaven upon them. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus instructed the disciples about how to respond if they weren't welcomed by a town when they went to proclaim the kingdom of God to them. 
Luke 9, 5 reads, if they do not welcome you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. There's nothing about judgment there. There's nothing about calling down fire there. In fact, there's barely any semblance of making things known to the people that rejected them. When you leave that town, as in not immediately in the face of those who have rejected you, but when you've done all you can and you're leaving, shake off the dust from your feet and be on your way. Who's gonna see this? Just the Father in heaven. He will be your witness. Instead, the disciples, as though they're intoxicated with the sense of power, the position that they hold, they wonder about calling down fire. They turn to power rather than compassion. I find in the modern day that we often also turn to avoidance rather than obedience when it comes to proclaiming the kingdom. Now in the passage, the disciples, James and John, why they think about calling down fire is fascinating. Like, it's not you know, out of nowhere that they decide, hey, let's try this thing, okay? They're not you know, role playing here, okay? What they're doing is they're recalling what happened in the past with the prophet Elijah and they draw a comparison with Jesus. Like not long before this, Jesus had asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some think that you're Elijah. And evidently, James and John are drawing a comparison here as well. We know what they're thinking about when they ask about calling down fire. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 9 to 16. And we're not gonna look at that today, but you can note that down in your minds. You can write that down if you want. 2 Kings 1, 9 to 16. Elijah had called down fire upon people. But Jesus is no mere prophet. Elijah might be a type of Christ pointing forward to the one to come, the Messiah to come, but Jesus is more than Elijah. He refuses to allow them to call down fire and judgment against these people for rejecting him. Do you notice that throughout the Gospels, Jesus doesn't wield his power in careless ways? He doesn't abuse his position as the son of God to harm others. Do you notice this? It isn't as though he isn't capable. He holds that power. He knows positionally who he is. He knows what he can do. Like for example, when the men come to arrest Jesus and Peter moves to defend him with his sword, he, Peter, he lops off one of the people's ears. And Jesus tells him to put his sword away and he tells him, do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Such is the relationship between the father and the son that Jesus could call upon his father's help at any moment 
and have more than 12 legions of angels to fight on his behalf. What's a legion? A legion in the Roman system was between three to 6,000 soldiers. So Jesus is talking about more than anywhere between 36,000 to 72,000 angels. Any other time that we see angels in the Bible, we see how one has wiped out thousands and thousands of people. But such is the relationship between father and son that Jesus would not call upon his father for this. For how then would the scriptures which said it must happen this way be fulfilled? The father's plan was of utmost importance to the son. Now we as people, we struggle to understand each other, especially when we lack this type of relationship exemplified by father and son. It's this relationship of absolute trust and love between Father God and Jesus. Now for this same reason, at this time, the disciples failed to understand how it could possibly be in God's plan for the Messiah to go and suffer and die. Despite Jesus telling them quite plainly about this, it wasn't in their paradigm. They still could not understand the passion to come and why it was necessary for Jesus to die. And quite ironically, the Samaritans described in this passage are the same. Like, rather than being so different as they believed themselves to be and hated each other for, the Samaritans, they too lacked the fundamental understanding of the necessity of this coming passion in Jerusalem and how Jesus was to fulfill God's plan. Instead, they hear that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and they think, no, get out of here then. Perhaps today, we lack an understanding of why Jesus, though he is to be rejected, still goes to them. Because we quite often only share the gospel with others when we're pretty sure it'll turn out okay. But Jesus, knowing how he'll be rejected, still goes to this Samaritan village. Here's the true character of God. This was our second reading today. Hosea 11. My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. Jesus is more loving, forgiving, and compassionate than we could ever imagine or dare hope. In this passage from Hosea, we see God's character manifest. The people have proven their character time and time again. By this point in the Bible, by the time you get to the book of Hosea, you've seen it, just ad nauseum, you've seen it so often. They're bent on turning from God. And yet God proves his character time and time again too. 
though eternal and unchanging, not at the beck and call of the rising and falling emotions that we humans are. He says his compassion is stirred. God refuses to give up on his people. Though they give up on him and though they give up on themselves constantly, he refuses to give up on them. We are his. Now, a few of you might wrestle in this moment with theology when it comes to God engaging with humanity in this way. Uh, Christian pastor and author Dane C. Ortland says this about this passage from Hosea. Let's not dishonor God by so emphasizing his transcendence that we lose a sense of the emotional life of God of which our own emotions are an echo, even if a fallen and distorted echo. God is not a platonic ideal, immovably austere, beyond the reach of meaningful human engagement. God is free of all fallen emotion, but not all emotion or feeling whatsoever. Where do our own emotions come from? We who are made in his image. The text says, his compassion grows warm and tender in light of his people's sins. God draws near to humanity in this way. His heart is moved to compassion. Can we look upon him and also be moved to compassion? I think if you were on social media at any point last night, or if you perused the news at all last night, you'd probably be aware of some of the anti-lockdown protests that are going on. Man, I don't know what your reaction was. I know what my reaction was, and I can't say that I'm proud of my reaction. I feel like as I'm preaching this, this is preaching to my heart first. And I wonder, can we be compassionate towards those that we find it very, very difficult to be compassionate towards? Or do you find your heart wishing harm upon them? If at any point you're viewing those things and you're hoping that you know, they catch an illness or something bad happens, is this the way of Christ? Because in the final moments of Jesus' life on earth, we hear his heart, for out of its overflow his mouth moves. Bible tells us when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. God. 
That line gets me, you know that? A sentence that Jesus utters upon the cross gets me, because I don't know if it's easy to be compassionate towards that are ignorant. I don't think it is. I don't think it's easy to be compassionate towards those that are willfully ignorant. The Father forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. But Jesus knows their hearts. Under great duress, hung upon a cross to die, crucified alongside criminals, despite his own innocence, Jesus seeks forgiveness from the Father for them, for us. What do we do when faced with an unbelieving people? We seek forgiveness from the Father on their behalf. We are compassionate as he is compassionate. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Though we were bent on turning from him, he loves us. How far off base are the disciples in our passage today, in our first passage today, when they seek judgment to be leveled against the Samaritans? Do they realize that they themselves will be wiped out if true righteous judgment were to come. Jesus' message, his manifesto, his mission is not just for hospitality, not just for welcoming in, but for truly embracing his message of peace. Discipleship in Christ, true discipleship in Christ is about embodying the word of God. And his words to his disciples have been one of pointing forward to his death and resurrection, to the passion still to come, in order to bring reconciliation and peace. In spite of the fact that we will reject him, Jesus has set his face to go. Even though he'll be rejected by all at the cross, and have all of the punishment for sin put upon him and have the wrath of God come against him because he knows and trusts in the Father's will for salvation, he will go. Can we do the same? Do you have trust in the Father? Do you trust him? Do you know him? Do you trust in his will for salvation? Turn your hearts towards him first and ask him to help you grasp his passion. Then ask him for help in being compassionate towards those around you, towards those that you find it difficult. I understand how difficult it is, how daunting it can be to even share your faith with others around you. We all fear rejection at some level. Look with me at how our first passage ends today. Luke 9, 56. And they went to another village. You know, after all is said and done, 
after Jesus rebukes James and John? They go. In the Christian life, there's a need to journey onwards. As disciples, as followers of Christ, we're compassionate as he is compassionate. We are welcoming as he is welcoming. And we set our faces to continue the mission, to journey on, and to share with those who will hear the gospel of grace. Today, as you pray with me, seek Christ and recognize that he has not left you alone in this journey. Though Jesus is not Elijah, he's a greater type of Elijah. This is fascinating. He, he did not entertain the disciples' idea to reenact what Elijah did by calling down fire of judgment upon the people. But instead, he did something that Elijah did at the end of his life. In 2 Kings 2, we see how as Elijah ascends into heaven, his spirit is passed on to Elisha. And at the beginning of Acts, we see too how Jesus has promised his spirit to his followers. And after ascending, they are filled with the spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, know that he has given you his spirit, that you may be empowered to be compassionate beyond what you believe yourself capable. Our compassion has an end, but his does not. He's changing you, shaping and molding you to be a son and daughter of the house of God. As you pray, may your compassion point others to his passion as you share the gospel of grace. Why don't you join with me in prayer? Father, we turn to you this morning recognizing the ends of our compassion. I know, Lord, how easy it is for me to be happy with those that are nice, to be compassionate towards those that I like, I also know how difficult it is to extend compassion upon those that truly need it, to those that we would label as the outsiders of society, to those that we would consider to be the last and the lost. It's difficult, Lord. As your son hung there upon the cross, he sought your face for blessing upon his enemies, upon those that crucified him, asking you, Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they're doing. We want our hearts to echo his words as well. As the expression of our hearts points people to the expression of his heart. We desperately want for our compassion towards them to lead them to your son's passion. We seek you now, Lord, asking that you would forgive and that you would lead people to the gospel of your grace, that they might be saved. We seek you now, Lord, asking that you would heal this land, that you would heal these people and their hearts and the great divide that exists between one another. We no longer seek division. We seek love and unity and reconciliation the way that Jesus does. And we seek you now for forgiveness of our own hearts, for the ways in which we did not seek reconciliation, but instead for the ways in which we have judged for the ways in which we've metaphorically called down fire from heaven upon them. We seek you now to overwhelm our hearts with your love that it would overflow from our hearts to our mouths as we speak to them, to our actions as we carry out acts of love on behalf of your son. May the gospel of grace change us from the inside out. Would you guide us by your love? Help us to seek you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen.